Believe it or not, there is a pro-life movement in the heart of San Francisco. Considered by many to be the heart of the abortion industry, UCSF is the late-term abortion training capital of America. For years, the University of California, San Francisco has been receiving a monthly supply of late-term aborted babies from elective abortions to harvest their organs for scientific experimentation. With the stated goal of, ready, maintaining and increasing the number of abortions, UCSF is the most politically involved medical institution on the issue of abortion in the world. So with me today to discuss this madness is Nick Reynosa, Director of Public Policy and Public Relations at the Society for Ethical Research, and Robert Byrd, Executive Coordinator at Pro-Life San Francisco. This conversation is gonna blow you guys away and I need you equipped to engage in this battle in the state of California in the heart of the abortion industry. Buckle up, I'm Seth Gruber and this is Unaborted. <laughs> Nick, Robert, welcome to the show, guys. Thank you for having us. Yeah, thank you so much. Yeah, really excited to have you guys on. Uh, Nick uh, had, was sharing with me a while ago what he was doing, what you guys were doing, and uh, I've been very eager to have you guys on for a while, partially because many people in the country don't actually understand what's happening with fetal tissue research, with fetal organ harvesting, um, and how many of our academic institutions are involved uh, with this malfeasance and with this uh, absolute debauchery um, of, of morality and of human flourishing. And so you guys have been on the front lines actually for a while. This is not a new battle for you guys. Um, but first, before we dive into everything and you guys teach our audience what's happening at UCSF and, and how they can learn more and get involved, how did you guys get involved in the pro-life movement, uh, especially in San Francisco? And are, are you guys allowed to be pro-life in San Francisco? Is that allowed? Uh, we're rebels. Uh, and, and public opinion is not going to stop us. So not one definition for counterculture. So. Yeah. Um, I, I got it started in the pro-life movement in uh, 2011 uh, with Students for Life. I was the president of my college chapter. But uh, pertaining to the Bay Area, I got out of the Marines in 2017, and that was when Teresa founded Pro-Life San. It was perfect timing and. David's trial was going on in San Francisco. I was actually there for some of the proceedings. And that was when I first learned in greater depth about uh, UCSF and fetal organ harvesting and so on. And wow. uh, so this has been going on for going on four years uh, for both of us. And, uh, and also too, just more recently, Jeff White from Survivors of the Abortion Holocaust decided to create a group specifically dealing, because Pro-Life San Francisco is like an umbrella pro-life group for all the different things, but Society for Ethical Research is focusing specifically on UCSF's work and fetal research in general. And, you know, our saying is, you know, we don't want David's brave work to have been done in vain. So, you know, we don't That's work right. for David or with David, but we're continuing, we're building on the shoulders of all the great work that he's done That's and ensuring right. that it's not forgotten and that we see it through to the end. 
That's right. And briefly on that, um, Nick, and then I, Robert, I want you to share how you get, got involved as well. Just so uh, to uh, refresh our listeners, some of them are younger. Some of them uh, wouldn't have been involved in what's happening in the country at the time that the Center for Medical Progress dropped their videos. So briefly, Nick, just give us a 30-second overview of who David Delighton is and the Center for Medical Progress and, and what happened at that time. So David Delighton is a pro-life investigative journalist who I believe it was 2014, he began a two-year investigation of various groups, uh, Planned Parenthood San Francisco being one of the main culprits and how they were violating you know, existing pro-life laws in, you know, in as far as protections for born alive infants and other, you know- uh, Northern California. Yeah, and, and other affiliates. atrocities that they were doing. And, you know, and he was persecuted for that. And we're trying, David's work is so important into, you know, creating these additional protections, possibly defunding Planned Parenthood, other things. And we're just trying to get that back in the national conversation again. Yeah, yeah, excellent. Um, Robert, how did you get involved uh, in the pro-life movement and with pro-life San Francisco? Well, there was one year, I think it was in 2009, I was taking my, you know, the recommended or the uh, uh, required health class, that one semester in health that every high school student has to take. Um, I was taking it during summer school, so it was very condensed and quick. Um, during the chapter or page on pregnancy, there was a little section that mentioned abortion, and that was the first time I'd ever heard of it. I was like, wow, that's a strength. That's that's a tragic thing that rarely happens. And wow. so I thought, this just must be something theoretical, like a procedure that exists on the books, but no one would actually, like no doctor would actually do this. So... Later on, found out more from the internet. Um, luckily, there wasn't a lot of um, social pressure in my life or conversation around abortion to, you know, push me into the, you know, what's the overwhelming majority consensus view in a place like San Francisco. Right. So I just learned on my own, uh, multiple sources. Uh, right to Life in Central California was one instrumental uh, part of my education and learning about, you know, the social um, science or um, the history, all of the, uh, the the controversy over abortion, and of course, whereas before I thought it was a rare thing, no one would, uh, you know, train to do. Train to do. It's uh, my eyes were opened when I saw the numbers about a, a million a year, more or less, uh, tens of millions in America since 1973, and just seeing those actual seeing actual photographs of living, you know, previously living human organisms dead on a, you know, in a medical wow. photograph. It's that was what, you know, really pushed me to keep learning. And, wow. and ironically, uh, in the end of 2016, when Trump was elected president, I was definitely worried that he would be a poor figurehead for the movement and definitely not convince anyone to join the pro-life side from in San Francisco. So I was looking to do what what can I do to speak for myself? Like how can I step up and do more? How can I actually be responsible with my pro-life convictions? And you know, if I'm worried about how someone else might, you know, poorly represent me, how can I represent myself? So yeah. uh, I quickly uh, found out uh, Teresa Bukovinak was starting Pro-Life San Francisco, joined up with her, and it's been history ever since. Wow, that's really cool. You know, I appreciate what you shared, Robert, uh, about the fact that you weren't sort of addicted to ideology. So you hadn't been sort of entranced by the myth of choice 
and the worldview of choice. And so when you encountered the reality of abortion, it struck you as self-evident to oppose it. And I think that's actually a powerful point you just made because so many young people, especially in college, um, have completely deaf ears to pro-life ideas because since high school or before, they've already been indoctrinated to believe that abortion is women's rights, that in fact, you, women have to have abortion to be equal with men. And so I, I always talk, tell people that you know everyone starts pro-life. Like I've shown my son a picture of, of prenatal imagery and I say, hey, wh what is this? And he says, it's a baby, right? Everyone starts pro-life and recognizes that these are little human beings. Um, they only uh, oppose pro-life ideas, not because they're not self-evident, but because they've been indoctrinated into a certain ideology that demands conformity and uniformity to a certain set of ideals. And so that's interesting to hear you share that you hadn't sort of been indoctrinated into those ideas, got exposed to abortion, and went, what the heck? <laughs> Are you kidding me? We're killing babies? So I think that's just a powerful point. I appreciate you sharing that. Um, so guys, pro-life activism looks a little different in San Francisco uh, than it does throughout the rest of the country, to, to put it lightly. So I know you guys in pro-life San Francisco have participated in sidewalk counseling. But your battle in the lane has been specifically more narrow. It's been focused on exposing and engaging the University of California, San Francisco, which is essentially the belly of the beast, kind of the heart of the abortion industry. So what is going on at the University of California, San Francisco? What does the American public need to know? In short, why does the Society for Ethical Research exist? What is going on? You know, I think... Some people, when they hear that we're pro-life in San Francisco, they're like, wow, that's a tough job, you know. But I, I oftentimes say that we're very grateful because it's like, you know, being a civil rights activist in like the deep south, you know, it's like we're, we're going where the problems are, you know. It's like letters from Birmingham. It's not letters from Boston. You know, you got to go where the problem is, you know. And right. um, so I'm grateful for that. And uh, but UCSF is symbolic in, in, in a very powerful way because it's really the worst of the worst. And it's. Um, not with also with David, it's kind of a foil to David and, you know, in, in defeating them, we're also standing up for David, but also just the pro-choice movement in general and the extremism is really focalized in UCSF. So for example, across the board, just from general abortion training to late-term abortion training to the specific procedures that we're going to talk about today, UCSF is on the forefront of that. They've trained over 2,700 abortionists and wow. they're the unique trainer in these two very barbaric procedures that we're going to talk about today, but also they do extensive political advocacy. So oftentimes, like there'll be like a pro-life law in like Nebraska or something, and you'll see a UCSF physician testifying in Nebraska because their tentacles go way beyond just Whoa. UCSF. So they're not just physicians; they're also political activists as well. Wow! And between like, you know, a lot, of, a lot of times in the media, you'll hear stats like between 2010 and 2020, there were 300 pro-life laws in various red states, right? And unfortunately, abortion politics are very reactionary. So in places like San yeah. Francisco, they intentionally pass extreme ideology as a reaction to what's happening in, say, Alabama or something like that. And so you'll see with, wow. uh, you know, all these things going on in the Bay Area in California as reactions to the successes that we're having in other parts of the country. And I just want to finish with, I think in the long run, like if we think 100 years down the road, if pro-lifers are successful, I think UCSF will really go down 
as one of the most infamous things in the history of abortion because it's a lot wow. it's in this long chain of horrible things like the Mengele experiments and the Tuskegee experiments where you exactly. start out with dehumanization otherization of something and then you use that to justify medical malpractice that's and, right commodification and, yeah and i think that in my 10 years of doing this UCSF is the worst level of dehumanization that i've seen it's the absolute worst it shows us that elections have consequences. It shows us the extremism that the movement is willing to go to. And even though I do think in some senses it's low-hanging fruit because it's not like we obviously want to stand up for all the unborn, but it is symbolic of how far this can go if we don't stand sure. up for what's right. Totally. And I think from a utilitarian standpoint, too, it's also very strategic to pour a lot of time, energy, and funding into discrediting uh, institutions like UCSF in the public mindset and in the public eye. And that's for one simple reason. Most of America would be horrified by what goes on at UCSF. Uh, a Gallup poll 2019 reported that only 13% of the American public supported the legality of third trimester abortions. Um, and so if they, if only 13% of the American public supports third trimester abortions, what do you think the percentage is of those who support um, allowing born-alive abortion survivors to die. Uh, I would guess even less, uh, but that's some of what's going on at, at UCF. So what are they doing to these little recently murdered babies? What, what's going on in terms of their scientific experimentation? I mean, there's an actual abortion clinic facility on campus, right? Like, just, just there, break, there, it, break it down for us and let us know what's going there's on. There's actually more than one location. Um, wow. There's one location at the Zuckerberg General Hospital, which is just a few hundred yards it. from their um, immunotherapy clinic. And so it's a little bit like who, what, where, why. So when you think about from a research standpoint, in order for tissue to be used for research, it has to be as normal as humanly possible. So completely undamaged, like can be lacerated, cut, burned, crushed, whatever. And so Traditional abortions or late-term abortions would be use something called the joxin. Like pro-lifers might know this as like lethal injection abortions or heart attack abortions, where they use the joxin or it's similar to potassium chloride used in lethal injections. But the problem is when you do that, you in in colloquial terms, you nuke the stem cells, so you, it makes that tissue wow. unusable. So they created uh, a couple of different procedures to get around this. One of them was created at the University of Pittsburgh. It's called the in vivo procedure, which means in the living. And what they do is they use mistoprostol to induce labor. And so the way Roberts described it as it's an attempted induced stillbirth, a keyword attempted because according to the Society for Family Planning, up to 50% of the time it can fail because okay. Generally speaking, a birth of a fetus that young is very traumatic. It, the birth itself will cause death, but it's not guaranteed. That's the risky right. part of it. So the just to repeat that for our listeners, the reason they're trying to do an attempted induced stillbirth is to ensure that the child, the baby, is as mm -hmm. intact as possible. So and, and why? So the goods, like the particular organs are going, so liver, thymus, heart, brain, they are in the trunk and the skull. They have the skin and the, the, the bones protecting it. But if you keep that trunk and skull intact, you keep the organs as preserved as possible. Also, we know the time frame because the abortion facility and the lab is, are so close that we know within hours of the abortion, wow. 
because they can put these organs on ice and transfer them within hours. They're already doing the experiment. It's as fresh as possible. On the same campus. Same, same physical location, yes. Wow. And even in, the, even in the contract, there's even verbiage such as like fresh, not frozen. That's how they're describing this stuff. Wow. Um, and uh, the second procedure is what we call a live dismemberment. And so what that does is they remove the extremities using uh, pliers and so forth. And then they have the trunk and the skull intact, and then they can extract the desired organs for that experiment. Right. And this would be called a D&E, correct? Correct, yes. And uh, so, uh, but how they do it is, what they do is they're trying to do immunotherapy research. So they'll take like, for example, a really popular thing is like a liver or a thymus. They'll take that organ, they'll implant it into a mice, they'll humanize the mice's immune system, and then they can do various immunotherapy research for things like HIV and so forth. Wow. And so that's kind of, the, I'm not a scientist, but that's like the high school version of what they're doing. Right. And so they need the organs as intact as possible, which is why mm -hmm. they perform the, abor the abortions that way. I'm correct. And, and yeah. it's to kind of put in perspective how extreme this is, is like these are very contentious procedures, even among abortion practitioners. There's one paper that I read that said up to 92% of abortion practitioners found these issues problematic because they're very risky. It's like I said, there's no guarantee of fetal demise and they're very concerned about being traumatic for the patient, for their staff. It's they, even they think this is way over the top. This is like late term abortion on steroids. That's right. Like, for example, a few years ago in New York, they passed a law that was considered very controversial that talked about the heart attack abortions. This is going a step beyond that because they're intentionally not using the dijoxin. So That's it's right. even more extreme. There's only two locations that we know of that practice this and only one location, UCSF, that trains for it. Wow. And then also um, it's very cruel and barbaric in the sense that we know for a fact that a certain percentage of these children are surviving. And we know for a fact that a certain percentage are experiencing pain. And the digoxin, the lack of digoxin, it just exacerbates that right. even worse. So let's let's talk about that. So so Robert, we learned recently that Judicial Watch dropped a bombshell that the FDA, which is housed within the HHS, so it's a federal institution, has been purchasing dead baby body parts from Advanced Bioscience Resources in Northern California, who is also uh, exposed for their complicity uh, in the investigative journalist reports by the Center for Medical Progress for their purchase of dead baby body parts from Planned Parenthood. Um, and this, uh, the FDA was actually complaining to ABR that much of the tissue was unusable. And we have the emails from Judicial Watch like two weeks ago <laughs> exposing the FDA is complaining to ABR saying the tissue from the children is unusable because you use digoxin. And that's, so that's what Nick was just talking about. So in order to avoid that, they either induce, they do induction abortions or dilation and extraction abortions. Well, UCSF has run into the same problem right, of, of spoiled tissue through the use of digoxin. And so um, with these medically induced late-term abortions, we know that this can result in born-alive infants. Can you talk about that? What happens? How, how often does this happen where in these abortions the child ends up being delivered alive during the abortion procedure? Uh, and then what would happen if they are born alive? I'm going to pull up a resource just so I can quote from it directly. So we've got it right here. 
So it's been uh, published in a medical journal uh, by the name of Contraception Journal. Um, kind of curious, it goes into abortion, not just contraception, which is like, okay, so it be the abortion journal. Um, <laughs> but um, it uh, specifically states, and this is, uh, these are guidelines uh, published in contraception journal by the Society for Family Planning. Um, the, one of the two co-authors is actually Eleanor Dry, the medical director of the UCSF abortion clinic uh, oh, on boy. the General Hospital campus in San Francisco. And she states right there that both in um, both in the cases of uh, medical induction, uh, or you know, this is like in colloquial terms, abortion pill, abortions after the first trimester, and in these cases, we're talking about late second trimester, early third trimester, depending on your definition, um, up to 24 weeks of a healthy baby from a healthy mother. Wow. Um, these. These, it's, it's really difficult to talk about, but it talks about how both with these, uh, the, the attempted stillbirth abortions, as well as DNA procedures, uh, there could be early delivery or extramural delivery is what uh, UCSF curriculum calls it, um, prior to demise. So the UCSF physicians, top physicians have acknowledged the reality of live birth scenarios um, both Eleanor Dry and Jody Steinauer. Steinauer um, co-published um, some UCSF curriculum that mentions the extramural deliveries that can happen even wow. both during digoxin and non-digoxin cases, strangely enough. So yeah. the fact that they acknowledge the reality of um, born alive cases, and we know that from their publicly available information that they do these, uh, that they supply for healthy tissue from 24 week children, 24 week fetuses that, wow. you know, these are babies who are at an age where if they'd been born, you know, naturally prematurely, so there's a chance they could survive, not just, you know, oh yeah, for moments, but provided right. medical care brought to the neonatal ICU, they survive yep. long-term. Um, yep. So you're when, saying that the, yeah. the, the, the person who oversees the abortion right. wing of the General Hospital on UCF's campus has written and admitted through the Society for Family Planning that up to 50% of induction abortions can result in born alive infants, not dead, alive and outside the womb. Well, we're, we're mixing sources there, but yeah, it is true. She wrote in the contraception journal and then the Society for Family Planning also mentioned that. So both of those things were just, wow. you kind of combine the two sources, but yes, that is true. Um, I just wanted to say, so you talked about numbers. How often does this happen? So we were very fortunate to find the contracts that UCSF had. So to break down the numbers, they had a 12-year running contract of two healthy late-term fetuses per month. And when you extrapolate that out, you get 288 victims. Now, that number could be much higher. That also doesn't include other fetal research at other universities but I can prove without a shadow of a doubt, 100%, at least 288 victims through this fetal research. The problem is, since we know math, it's a mathematical certainty that some are born alive and some are experiencing pain. We don't have any transparency from UCSF about procedures, what they do when that happens, how many times that happened. You know, if someone didn't follow it, were they punished? There's no transparency. And we've 
put in freedom of information request. I'll let Robert kind of go into the freedom of information thing, but we've been pressuring them for going on two years about the freedom of information. We've been pressuring the UC to have more, UC uh, Board of Regents and Governor Newsom to have more transparency because if these are, if these violations are happening, if they're not being granted care after they're born right. alive, that is a crime. It's not like we're trying to pass a pro-life law to make it a crime. It is already a crime. And yeah. yeah. And so I think that is important because the one weakness of the pro-life laws that we have now is enforcement is, you know, we need exactly. to trust, but ver we need to trust, but verify. And we don't have that. Yeah. And we have a, we live in a very blue state that is letting the physicians themselves regulate themselves, and it's not. It, it, there, there's nowhere near the level of transparency that we want. That's but I'll right. let Robert go into the freedom of information. So, you, thing. so you guys, through Pro Life San Francisco and Society for Ethical Research, have been demanding that the Board of Regents at UCSF provide transparency as to how often do born alive births happen, what happens when that happens, and they haven't responded or provided any information. Correct. Correct. It's well. The only thing that we've gotten specific on our, we've put in several requests for information through the California Public Records Act. Uh, we've gotten ton, we've gotten several pages of you know, documents, a lot of curriculum, um, the fetal tissue donation consent form. Um, you know, the, the abortion patient or client has to check off the box, I wish to donate pregnancy tissue, or I do not wish to donate pregnancy tissue. Um, we're We've been promised uh, several more documents coming, but some of the responsive requests have come up empty. For example, they told us that there are no protocols for life birth situations at the Women's Option Center. So it's like, wow. if you don't have any rules on the books, how can you demonstrate to us that you're following the law? That you're protecting um, children who are born alive, right? Exactly. If you were to bring up um, the Born Alive Infants Protection Act from 2002, and like before, like just for example, before the discovery of the crimes of Kermit Gosnell, you might have been laughed out the room by pro-choice people by saying, "Look, we need to beef up this existing law. We need to make sure it's enfor it's enforceable. We've got, right. you know, adequate oversight and regulations to really, you know, you know, put in procedures to make sure that." you know, doctors are actually, you know, following the law. And you would have been laughed out the room if, if you were to say the 2002 Infants Protection Act wasn't enough, but then boom, due to just a random drug bust, the infanticide crimes of Kermit Gosnell and his staff were brought to light. That's right. Um, and if we're gonna say that, if we're gonna continue on in the future and say that, oh, these laws are adequate enough, there've been several instances of crimes and suspected crimes. Uh, in 2006, there was a case down in Florida, um, a nurse by the name of Belkis Gonzalez uh, put a born alive infant in a biohazard bag and discarded it. Um, the mother, uh, Secloria Williams, testified that her baby was born alive before the abortion procedure. And oh at the outset, everyone believed the baby was 23 weeks, so potentially viable. Definitely, you know, somebody who should have been transported to a hospital, provided medical care. Um, it wasn't until way later in the proceedings it was discovered that the child was 21 weeks and likely not viable, so criminal charges didn't stick. But besides that, there's been several other instances, uh, particularly, um, let's see, uh, there's a 
Pulitzer Prize uh, winning journalists or Pulitzer Prize nominated journalists who wrote about various born alive uh, victim cases in the in the 80s. So this is something that, you know, crime, all, a lot of crime takes place behind closed doors. These are things you need to shine a light into it because it's happening right. in secret. If, right. if hospitals that are doing abortions on healthy women, healthy babies at six months old, and from all the publicly available information, we know that some of them are born alive and they've acknowledged that born alive scenarios are a real thing, not, not some sort of fiction made up by pro-life people without, you know, with too much time on their hands. Yeah. They need to demonstrate to us that they're following the law. And in two months of urging the leaders of the University of California to bring transparency to the situation, we've been given nothing to assure us that, you know, all these born alive infants are being given wow. the proper medical care that they deserve. And, and that tells us everything we need, we need to know, honestly. Of course, we're, you guys are working on the front lines to get that smoking gun in order to per, per, uh, pursue federal prosecution against these individuals and, and this institution. But that, I mean, that lack of transparency tells us everything that we need to know. If they're admitting that some children are born alive in the uh, methods that they use to perform abortions, then where are the babies? Where are the babies that were born alive? Were they put up for adoption? Did you take them to the hospital wing and take, where are the babies? <laughs> I, I think we all know you're snipping their spinal cords like Kermit Gosnell or you're suffering. Where are them. they now? Where are they now? Those are the main words. And something else came to mind. I'll probably bring it up later on. Well, I was just gonna say, you know, for your California viewers, you know, Governor Newsom has some direct responsibility in this too, because as governor, he directly oversees the UC system. Every diploma from the UC system has his signature on it. We've protested at the governor's mansion about this. He's also a possible presidential candidate in 2024, 20, uh, possibly. So, I mean, Good it's boy. just important that we, the public knows the main players who are responsible for this. And I would put Governor Newsom there, uh, Vice President Kamala Harris. Interestingly, during the last presidential race, of all the Democratic candidates, the number one national figure who's had most involvement with the David Delight and the UCSF issue is Kamala Harris. She was District Attorney of San Francisco, sen Attorney General of California, Senator from California. So she has right. a lot of fingerprints over all of this. That's right. And furthermore, leaving aside the barbarity of this particular issue, just even in the investigative journalism component of it, there were animal rights activists doing the exact same tactics that David Daleiden was doing, and Kamala Harris supported them. And she's <laughs> yeah. doing content discrimination against David Daleiden and, and, right. and, and persecuting him, attacking him. And even the district attorney of Los Angeles came out and said, you know, the types of tactics that law enforcement was using against David was tantamount to persecution because he's an investigative journal. Other investigative journalists do these things. That's and I right. just, you know, I want to reiterate to your audience, you know, like elections have consequences. And unfortunately, with abortion politics, a lot of it's reactionary. Yeah. So you're going to see through figures like Governor Newsom and Kamala Harris this sort of knee-jerk reaction to support the most extreme providers. And, you know, and there's not really a lot of thought. It's very reflexive. You know, I don't think yeah. they really put a lot of thought into this. It's not leadership. That's right. Yeah, and well, Kamala Harris, of course, as attorney general, she was the one who oversaw the prosecution of David Daleiden and Sandra Merritt for exposing Planned Parenthood uh, in their complicity with selling the children that they'd already killed on the black market. 
Uh, and so if anyone has more involvement in this, it's certainly Kamala Harris, who's slotted to be the next president, my goodness. Probably she the single greatest... Yeah, she's probably the single greatest political enemy to the pro-life movement and the unborn. And, and she was also the co-sponsor, if you guys remember, of the most radical piece of federal pro-abortion legislation we've ever seen. It's called the Women's Health Protection Act. Um, we'd never seen a more radical piece proposed on the federal level. Luckily, it didn't pass. Um, but this woman had a, had a big role, of course, to, to play in all of this. Uh, Robert, go ahead. Yeah, sorry about that. So, yeah, with Kamala, she uh, opened up this purely politically motivated uh, investigation against David and his colleagues, raided his apartment, and when she was elected as senator, handed off this investigation, this case to help her, you know, political donors at Planned Parenthood, to um, the subsequent attorney general, Javier Becerra. He uh, filed the criminal charges and started the official prosecution, and now he's been rewarded as <laughs> with becoming secretary of Health and Human Services. He's That's overseeing... Right fetal tissue research connected to abortion now. So That's what right. do you think he's going to do? He's already started dismantling some of the yeah. limited, but like real, like substantive limiting of aborted right. fetal tissue research. Yeah. And he's probably going to go, you know, whole hog and yeah. eliminate all, all that. That's very helpful for you guys to name all the figures involved. And so you guys, what Robert just said was that Xavier Becerra, who became attorney general after Kamala Harris, is now the assistant to the HHS director in the federal government. The director is a man who thinks he's a woman. And uh, Xavier Becerra and the Biden administration just overturned Trump's restrictions on fetal tissue research. Uh, and so all these people run in the same circle. And I think that might be a helpful next thing to talk about, about some of the players involved here. So obviously Newsom. Um, used to be the mayor of San Francisco, now the governor of California, and was and pushed, was it in 2019, uh, to begin forcing California four-year state universities to provide the abortion pill uh, on their university health center campuses. Um, now, that is interesting as it pertains to UCSF because the director... Uh, uh, over at the Bixby Center Program for Advancing New Standards in Reproductive Health, Daniel Grossman has been one of the biggest leaders in uh, getting the abortion pill on California four-year state universities. Uh, do you guys want to talk about that at all, about the, this Bixby Center, which is part of UCSF and some of the figures involved? Sure. Yeah, so the Bixby Center is basically the organization within UCSF that oversees all abortion-related initiatives, the Ryan Residency Training Program, the fellowship and family planning for extra specialized, you know, training in abortion care, right? You know, it's just, wow. it's healthcare. Right? And, 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 you know, uh, Dr. Oh, and, Gro and all the political Dr. Advocacy. Grossman was definitely, like, I went to several SB 320 and then SB 24 hearings, and he was consistently one of the expert witnesses for the pro SB and what 24. And what were those pieces of legislation? So SB 320 was the original version of the campus abortion pill law. It was vetoed by Governor Brown. Uh, he said Brown, it was yeah. Yes, it was. Un he said it was unnecessary, and also he viewed it as extreme. But then wow. Governor Newsom <laughs> ran in 2018 to disagree with his former boss and pass it himself. So the the second iteration of that was SB 24. But you know what's amazing? that, you know, in California, the Democrats control 76% of one of the chambers, 72% of one of the other chambers. And it took them like over three years to pass this campus abortion law. I mean, that's a slam so, dunk. They could have, that just shows you. So what does you, that it, tell it, you? Yeah. It just tells you how extreme this is, that that dragged exactly. along for three years. 
Yeah. And but Dr. Grossman is definitely one of the the main henchmen in that movement, and yeah. he's uh, appropriately named as well. <laughs> um, but I uh... yeah yeah wow no that that's Grossman's... helpful guys because I, I want people to just understand how so much of what happens in the country and happens in California. Uh, can be traced back to UCSF and to San Francisco. I remember covering SB 24 at the time about the radical nature and the danger to women's health alone, even if you don't care about the baby, that SB 24 represented through the abortion pill available on university health centers. And I was like, oh, look who's behind the big push for abortion pills on four-year state universities in California, Dr. Daniel Grossman at the Bixby Center at UCSF. And so, so much of this comes out of there. And so you guys are really fighting the dragon um, herself. And that's why I think it's important that people recognize um, where sort of some of the front lines of this battle is. Now, guys, you know, I, I want to talk a little bit about the, the moral aspect of this um, before we close out, because I found that a lot of pro-life individuals and, and Christians uh, who are involved in the pro-life movement are a little bit squishy when it comes to fetal tissue research or organ harvesting, right? There's this libertarian pro-lifer, right, who says, well, okay, come on, Nick. I mean, these babies were already going to be killed. They've already been aborted. Hey, I'm pro-life, guys. I'm trying to end abortion, too. But in the meantime, until we end abortion, we should at least get some good out of the babies well, who we can't save right now. So, so, but no, this is a popular talking point right now. I don't believe that. But, but let's talk a little bit about the moral side of this. In short, why is fetal organ harvesting and fetal tissue research wrong? Because they're, they're going to be aborted anyways, right? So let's just try to pass pro-life laws and in the meantime, use the babies who have already been murdered um, through abortion in order to find vaccines and help the born and the wanted. Right, Nick? Mm -hmm. what, how do we respond to that? So there's a lot there. I, where do I start? But I was going to say there's a, a huge moral differences. So, for example, like I have a donor organ donor card on my license, right? And we're, we're totally for consensual organ donations. But that's like the moral difference between me getting a car wreck and donating my organs and then me shooting Robert and then non-consensually donating his organs. It's, yeah, very, do it's very different, right? <laughs> and right. so... And then also, too, we talk about we take a very principled stand. We're not taking a utilitarian. A lot of times unethical research has a very utilitarian approach. So, for example, if you said, well, during the Holocaust, all these mangala experiments, they cured cancer. Like that doesn't make it right. You know, like, that's right. You, that's right. And so and, and, and so what I'm we're saying is if you take a utilitarian approach, then where do you stop? Is one dead baby worth it? 10, 100, 1,000? I mean, it never ends, right? Because That's you're right. searching for this utilitarian end. If you take a principled stand with the patient and you say that it is morally wrong to non-consensually you know, experiment on a patient and all the great ethical codes that we have, you know, like the Nuremberg Code and so forth, have consistently talked about the consent of the patient, not directly harming the patient. And what UCSF right. does violates the Nuremberg Code again and again and again. I mean, you can just wow. go down the list over and over and over again. And, you know, I do think there's there's beauty in consensual organ donation. If people want to do that, all power to them. And even fetal tissue research. Yeah, even if, if you have a miscarriage, a natural miscarriage, and you want to donate that, that's perfectly fine as well. But it's morally wrong to do it non-consensually. And also it creates very bad incentives to seek out certain types of women who are farther along, farther abortion that are later in fetal development for certain types of, you know, good That's tissue right. or farther along developed tissue. And it creates a, a sort of 
a usefulness of the feet. Like we're using them for something, you know? And like one they of the quotes a commodity. We always, Yeah. And then like, you know, one of the quotes we always say is you can't drive out death with more death. You know, like, I don't understand. Is that healthcare? Is that medicine? If That's you're right. killing someone to save someone, it, it seems counterintuitive to me. That's and, right, yeah. um, and so and that's, that's I think what you guys do is very important as well. And here's why, because reality tends to be self-evident. OK, mm -hmm. um, most people at a uh, let's call it uh, a uh, inclination level at a gut level, at a reactionary level. Right. When they hear about organ harvesting, even if it is on unborn children killed through abortion, the the the, the normal Americans response is, ew. Ew, that's wrong. And this is what philosopher Leon Cass called the wisdom of repugnance. There's a wisdom in your repugnant immediate reaction to hearing something disgusting. There's probably wisdom in that initial uh, muscular um, sort of moral response, a reflex of like, that's wrong. And, and so I think it's in a, a very important battle too because it actually strikes at the heart of the abortion debate, which is what is the unborn? Who are these children? If they're distinct living and whole human beings with intrinsic dignity, then killing them to benefit others is a clear-cut evil. And I, and I think we could think of other scenarios where these same experiments would be happening, where all Americans would immediately be disgusted, right? What if instead of unborn aborted babies being used, the federal government was purchasing the bodies of black Americans killed through gang violence or white police officers, immediately taking their bodies and putting them on fresh ice and then mutilating them in order to create black humanized mice. Uh, do you think Black Lives or, Matter might have an issue with that? Yeah, um, or you know, even, well, I was going to say sometimes the unborn are compared to like, you know, severely mentally handicapped people. So what yeah, if you right. experimented on very mentally or very people that were injured in a car wreck and are in a vegetative state. I mean, you could find other types of people that might be, you know, prime candidates for that, but it's still very, very disturbing. That's and, right. uh, you know, it's interesting, you know, in their inhumanity, they actually ironically reveal the humanity of the unborn because they're using their human organs to do human right. immunotherapy research. So they reveal their humanness in that. And then also Ben Carson wow. said this beautiful thing. He said, if it's not alive, then why do you need its organs? By definition, something that's living is growing. That's the right. organs are growing. They're developing. That's and right. So in their twistedness, they actually reveal some truth in, in what because they're doing. Because reality tends to be self-evident. And that's why mm -hmm. most Americans who are even pro-choice were disgusted when they heard about what Center for, the Center for Medical Progress exposed about Planned Parenthood. Because they had a reflex repugnance to the reality that children were being killed and then their organs harvested in order to benefit the living, right? Consider a case where, yeah, exactly. I mean, consider a case where- Sorry how they said that. Yeah, and of course they, they covered it up by saying that it was heavily edited. But I mean, consider a case where a hospital becomes the beneficiary of a gang of killers who supply it with a, uh, with a monthly supply of fresh cadavers. Uh, you know, would you question the appropriateness of the hospital continuing their cooperation with the suppliers? Don't worry, they're dead now, they're cadavers, and we're just using them to benefit the living. It's like, well, no, you're actually complicit now in the evil act because, you're you, the, because those individuals were killed, murdered, and now you're working with the murderers in order to benefit the living. Uh, and that would be wrong by any, sort of any self-evident uh, moral compass. And so... Um, 
What else, what else would you say, um, do you respond to people who say that this is justified because their children who were already aborted, the mothers consented to the abortion, um, and therefore, you know, we're not complicit in the evil means? One thing that you kind of touched on that, just with that analogy, the fact that it's an actual partnership that exists prior to the abortion procedures, that mm. the consent form for donating the pregnancy tissue, like that's exactly the wording you'll see on one of our recent posts on Pro Life San Francisco, the consent form for tissue donation is given prior to the abortion procedure. So, um, and it's more than just one UCSF laboratory, it's multiple laboratories across the city that um, have partnered with the Women's Option Center clinics. So they're expecting, they're they have an interest in the continuation of legal That's legalized right. elective abortion. They're ha they're creating this ongoing demand, a steady stream. It's not of organs. It's not that they're just you know wandering the halls of the hospital, uh, you know, coming across various uh, medical waste bins and saying, "Oh, hey, look, aborted organs. Let's we might as well make use of it." No, it's they're right. in they're in coordination with the abortion centers. That's right. Prior wow. to the deaths, expecting the deaths of these children to continue yeah. instead of putting money and resources into the available ethical alternatives. That's right. To, you know, make, you know, this is something that is really simple, that medical ethics and ethical alternatives need to be taken seriously. I just wanted to briefly touch on the Nuremberg Code, the principles, because you, if you just go through the 10 points of the Nuremberg Code, you can see, you know, continual violations of, you know, it talks about, you know, if you know that there's other methods of study to do something, you should never do something that is going to um, cause harm to the patient, unnecessary, the keyword unnecessary physical suffering. We know that the lack of digoxin, especially over 20 weeks, is going to cause suffering. We right. know that um, the patient should be able to be able to stop it at any time. Uh, this, this, um, they should be, you know, conducted by uh, X. The only thing, the only one of the 10 points that it, it meets is it's conducted by scientifically qualified persons. Every other principle is, um, you know, uh, they said it should be, no experiment should be conducted where there is an a priori reason to believe that death or disabling injury will occur. I mean, just over and over again, this is yeah. violating the most basic ethics. Yeah, that's right. And, and, uh, and that was a good point you made, too, because um, as long as we accept fetal organ harvesting and fetal tissue research, then we're creating a market for the evil means. And the evil means that you procure these children through is abortion, is the intentional killing of a little human being with human rights. Um, but I, I, I think what Robert mentioned about women who are getting the abortions, marking whether they want their dead child used for medical experimentation and tissue research, also adds a very complex moral dilemma to an already morally complex decision for the mother, which is the abortion. And now she's being forced to consider whether she's going to allow her child, who she's complicit in killing, to donate it for medical experimentation. So this ends up communicating to some women that killing their unborn child redeems 
the abortion, redeems the desperate situation because they say, oh, at least my child can be used to benefit others. In fact, maybe you guys have heard about this. There was a 1995 study by the Joint Center for Bioethics at the University of Toronto, and they found that among women who would consider abortion, 17% would be more likely to have one if fetal tissue could be donated for medical use. And that was in the 90s when abortion wasn't, when America wasn't as pro-abortion as it is now. Uh, Imagine what that percentage might be now for women who might already contemplate abortion being told, hey, actually your abortion will be used to help others. Yeah, I think it adds to a layer of rationalization and it kind of gives a silver lining to an ugly situation, I think for sure. The phrase silver lining was used in, uh, there's a piece of evidence from one of the uh, David Leiden hearings, um, one of the federal lawsuit trials, um, somebody by the name of Ruth Eric, uh, who works with abortion providers, um, this recording was played in the courtroom a couple of years ago, and I can't remember all the details of her employment, but she herself, who works with an abortion provider or uh, around fetal tissue donation, used the phrase silver lining that this, you know, this does put that put, you know, the abortion into a better, you know, perspective. And, and I think, too, we have to fight these narratives about fetal research because the, the common consensus is that it's just inherently necessary, inherently better, inherently safer. Uh, and I think there's definitely a, a, a very strong intellectual de- debate to be had about all those things. Um, I think, you know, we have alternatives like pluripotent adult stem cell research. That's right. We see the lack of results among fetal research. We see even safety concerns, like arguably the most unethically sourced vaccine, the Johnson & Johnson vaccine, is the one that was recalled, and the other less uh, problematic ones weren't recalled. So you can definitely, I think, without a shadow of a doubt, say that the idea that fetal research is inherently better is patently false. I don't think that necessarily matters on a moral level, because like I said, we make a principled argument. But if people are going to throw that talking point at you, you definitely have some firepower to come back and say, well, what about this? What about this? It's clearly not as cut and dry. I think they use that as a way to shut down conversation and to make it seem like it's just inherently better. And we need to be educated to come back and say, no, here's why it's not better and have those talking points ready. That's right. Even some of the the abortion advocates on the fetal uh, tissue uh, ethics board, um, which was recently, you know, canceled by... Secretary Becerra, um, yeah. and some of the pro-abortion people on that board um, agreed that you know certain uh, grant applications where scientists wanted to use aborted fetal tissue in their protocols were totally unnecessary. They agreed with the pro-life members and were like, "Yeah, we'll not recommend HHS fund this study." They only like out of like so it, it it's known that this isn't the only way we can do these scientific experiments. And if you can imagine, if you can pick one study that can only be done with the tissue of a baby torn apart at six months, it's just mind boggling to think that we would go forward even if that was the only way we can conduct a particular experiment. Medical ethics are necessary. We can't just ignore, that's not something we can just toss to the side and say, oh, that's not scientifically based. Right, we're talking about a different topic. This is ethics. That's right. Yeah, and, and we cannot rely on, we can't let the white coat syndrome 
or the deference to doctors because history has shown us that doctors are very utilitarian and for you know, eugenics and through you know um various things of you know I, we talked about the dehumanization and that's why even the nuremberg trials there was opposition from doctors and other follow-on medical ethics because some doctors felt you know the they were over they overly relied on consent so I think that definitely there needs to be a, like a, a watchman, you know, a third party that is not letting these doctors run amok. And, you know, history's shown that time and again. So yeah, all these right. government funded projects happening, like all the drug testing and human development research, looking into how diseases grow and develop, that can, all that happening at universities such as UCSF, it's, it's not something that we, it can be complicated, it can be detailed, but it's as simple as they're creating a demand for aborted fetal organs. They're, they have an interest in the continuation of legal abortion. How can we allow our medical professionals, like UCSF is a renowned med school and research institution. They do, right. they, they do a lot of good. They do evil. It's just, yeah. Yeah, we need to right. hold our local, you know, these, these institutions accountable, uh, ensure they're following the lax law that already exists and demand even better, demand even Absolutely. better from them. Yeah, and to quote uh, Bishop uh, Joseph Strickland, I will not kill children to live. Um, and that's exactly what um, they believe and that they require that we continue doing. And not only is it wrong because it kills a human being for no justifiable reason, but it also strengthens and grows the very movement profiting off of the killing of the children in the first place, the abortion industry. Um, as we close up, guys, uh, just provide us with any, uh, any updates or breaking news on uh, your frontline battle against UCSF. Um, uh, update us on uh, where they are at, if they've provided any information, where's your battle against them currently, and how can people help you? So I've got a lot of quotes from the curriculum that pulled up. It's, it takes time to really make things very, um, you know, compact, you know, nutshell everything so that it's uh, easily com consumable to a public audience. You know, you can't sacrifice accuracy um, or brevity. Both are very important. So we're going to continue putting out information that we've received already from UCSF. We put up a post just yesterday uh, with some brand new information. Um, that's uh, part of that was the fact they told us the women's option centers have no protocols on the books for how to deal with the live birth situation. Um, and they've promised they'll be giving us the fetal tissue transfer or collection logs. So uh, as soon as we get that, you know, a picture tells a thousand words. And as this content gets out to the public, what we need is for people to be sharing this. That's we right. want it to be common knowledge because the even all the public the publicly, everything that UCSF readily admits to that they, uh, you know, they point to the law to justify, you know, what they're doing and everything they celebrate about, you know, their practices is really gruesome and, you know, terrible enough to be front page news already. And yeah. it's something that, you know, while there's all sorts of debates on other areas of science, these laboratories that are creating a demand for aborted fetal organs for drug testing and human development research, they need to be receiving the most scrutiny for creating that, you know, creating, partnering with these abortion centers and making it as if 
it justifies, you know, the abortion industry's yeah, practices. Right. And the fact that the abortion industry and the media have worked so hard to make sure that nobody hears about what's happening at UCSF and advanced bioscience resources and Planned Parenthood's role in selling the children that they kill tells you everything you need to know. Because if they're that afraid of the information getting out, they know that it will compromise the character and how the public perceives Planned Parenthood, which makes your battle that much more important. I, I just wanted to leave your audience with this very important fact that, you know, UCSF is in many ways like the mothership of pro-choice activism. And a lot of times their ideas serve as a blueprint particularly for, there's about 16 really blue states that are very pro-choice. And these ideas might start in say Sacramento and become California laws, but they quickly spread. Like we're seeing campus abortion pill laws in Massachusetts, in individual colleges in Illinois, Washington state. It can right. spread very fast. And same thing could happen with fetal research as the Biden administration maybe ramps that up. That's so right. just, you know, and also, Robert has been so useful like in finding these very hard these, are, these things are not very transparent. So right. I would just challenge your viewers if they have local universities to look into it because it does take a little bit of work, but we know there's over a hundred million dollars total of federal funding for fetal research and, and UCSF is just a fraction of that. So look into your local universities, keep an eye on your local state houses for these, you know, either fetal research or or campus abortion pill laws that are coming out of UCSF. And then if people are interested in getting more involved on the ground level, Society for Ethical Research from time to time does have internships up in the Bay Area. It varies from time to time. Usually it's in the summertime, depending on funding. But as we get closer to the summer, keep an eye out on Pro-Life San Francisco and Sarah Now, the social media, because we may be offering those internships. And it's an opportunity for young people who are passionate to come and help yeah. for a few months on the ground. That would be very helpful as well. Excellent. Guys, where can people connect with the Society for Ethical Research and Pro-Life San Francisco? So Society for Ethical Research, just like it sounds, on Facebook and Sarah Now on Twitter and uh, Instagram. And then Robert. Uh, yeah, for Pro-Life San Francisco, you want to go to Pro-Life SF. That's our handle for all social media accounts, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. Um, let's see. Oh, uh, slash Pro-Life San Francisco on YouTube as well. Um, start following us now. Like, we put out information constantly about several subjects, including our UCSF campaign. Um, these are things we want to become a normal, regular part of the pro-life conversation. And beyond that, just you know, within our San Francisco community, just the a, a main topic in you know the San Francisco public consciousness. That's these right. things can't be you know, even if it's publicly celebrated on these medical journals and you know, it's already open information. It needs to be a universally known fact, all yeah. of this. Yeah. And that's what Excellent. we aim to do. Good. Thank you, guys. Uh, for everyone listening, go follow them on social media. Check out their websites. You can also view a short documentary film that Pro-Life SF did called UCSF, an American Horror Story. So go check that out. Go reshare what they're doing. Follow them for updates. Let's blow this up. Um, and uh, let's get people involved in internships and certainly the march uh, each year in San Francisco, continuing to expose this and get people on board. Thank you guys so much for joining the show today.
Thank you, Seth. Thanks so much. Appreciate it. Yeah, keep up the good work. Thank you guys for tuning in today. If you want to learn more and engage with me online, head on over to iTunes, Spotify, YouTube. Give the show a rating and review. It really helps us reach more people. If you want to learn more and engage with me uh, online to sign up for my newsletter, see my speaking schedule, or hear me speak live and local, head on over to sethgruber.com, S-E-T-H-G-R-U-B, as in babyboyer.com. Until next week, I'm Seth Gruber, and this is Unaborted. Thank <laughs> you.